The Ram Dhamma's Kingdom by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 18, Triumph and Sabotage. Kellogg's residence was located more than 20 miles inland. It was a well-constructed home in the midst of dense tropical plants and trees at the end of a long drive. Laughter could be heard outside the yellow cinder block house as the general had invited Lieutenant Johnson and two SIA men inside to celebrate the demise of the Ram Dhamma. Before I go, said Wilkins, an older SIA man, I never thought I'd see this destruction, honestly. I mean the total destruction of Patero Grande. You had the Ram Dhamma hoodwinked all the way, Matt. And now he's finally out of our hair, Wilkins, said Kellogg, pushing back his recliner and lifting his drink. All our obstacles have, uh, shall we say, fallen away. He smiled as he took a gulp of the whiskey. I never liked the son of a bitch anyway. Ah, who the hell did? asked Johnson. I'll tell you something, General. When those cages were empty, with all those underground explosions, I can't say I didn't expect it all to be blown sky high. Too damn close, replied Kellogg. Another few minutes and we would have been part of that cloud. I don't understand those explosions. That overcharging he spoke of at the end. We're going to have to send recon in there to go in and scour the area, he said, turning to the other SIA men. Start formulating something, Charlie. Well, let's just hope, said the bald-headed Charlie. The SRT flight goes off as planned. The space program certainly needs a thrust forward. It'll be the biggest thing to help this country in years, Charlie. Don't worry about it. Everything will go off on schedule, he said as Johnson stood and put on his jacket. And you'll keep me posted, Matt, asked Wilkins. You will be notified immediately on every aspect of this flight, said the general. He put his drink on the end table and then got up from the recliner. In a few weeks, I hope to be hosting another celebration when all this SRT business is over. Forward to that, General, said Johnson. Good luck, Matt, said Charlie, shaking his head. Have a good flight. Smooth, smooth sailing, quipped the General. Well, I, for one, will feel better when it's all over, said Wilkins as they moved toward the front door. Ditto, said Johnson, stepping outside. I'll be in touch, General. You do that, Lieutenant, smiled Kellogg as he watched the men leave and step into their small turbo. The car backed down the dirt road, disappearing behind the trees as it moved onto the highway. Kellogg remained at the window. Less than a few minutes later, a long white limousine raised the dust in the driveway. Two MPs jumped out of the car. Seconds later, Annie Sinclair and, and then McGee, both dressed in bright blue flight suits stepped onto the driveway. They looked around the yard as the MPs escorted them to Kellogg's front door. The general was at the door and brought them inside. You may wait out here, he said to the MPs and then he closed the door. McGee and Andy scanned the house as if they were animals inside a new cage. Miss Sinclair, Mr. McGee, he said as he shook their hands. Pleasure to see you both looking so well. I mean, after what you two have been through. Thank you, General said McGee. Your men have been most accommodating. We're grateful for all of your efforts on our behalf. You are, eh? Smiled Kellogg as he went over to his liquor. Drink? Scotch, said McGee, and he looked at Annie. Same for me, she answered, and Kellogg poured the drinks. McGee stood stiffly. He rehearsed everything he was going to say to Kellogg. There would be no mention of his knowledge of the red metal and its deep space location. No mistake about our motives at Patero Grande said Kellogg as he handed the drinks to them. 
You were not the main object of our raid, but I'll get to that. General, said Annie, McGee has told me that your offer still stands for both of us. Oh, you mean the SRT flight, he smiled. That arrangement was made long ago, during the Hutchinson escape in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm sure the flight will be a new experience for both of you. It'll give you time to think. About what? asked McGee. Please, if you would sit down, said the general. They sat on the small sofa and Kellogg took a gulp of his drink and then walked over to them. I have to be honest with you, I have an ulterior motive. Ulterior motive? inquired McGee, wondering if there were going to be more questions. Yes, I was very impressed, or should I say overwhelmed, by what happened. <laughs> you two personally led us all at the SIA on a wild goose chase. From your office in Worcester to Phoenix, you had the audacity to walk right into that temple and tap the computer. I find that incredible. Not only that, you found Potero Grande. Not only did you find Potero Grande, but you crossed the roughest terrain in the Andes. Unfortunately, your client, Colonel Hutchinson, as you have told our interrogators, was killed by the enforcers. Getting back to the issue here, not only was I impressed by all of this, but my superiors were impressed. We've given the entire incident many hours of thought. My ulterior motive, Miss Sinclair and Mr. McGee, is to invite you to work for the SIA. What? Choked McGee, not expecting such an offer. It could ruin all his attempts to get the red medal. We don't know what to say, right, Annie? Amazing, said Annie with a fake smile, and she downed the scotch. But General, this is such an undertaking, McGee stumbled. We can't just decide on the spot. Oh, no, no, no. I don't expect any instant decisions. No, sir. That's why I said you'll have time to think on the SRT flight. Oh, we'll do plenty of thinking, all right, smiled McGee. Visions of the red metal piled in some warehouse bin floated through his mind. Right, that's just how we can leave it, said Kellogg, unless you categorically refuse the offer. Let me give you some background. You see, the operation at Patero Grande had been planned for months in advance, of course. Our move against the Ram Dama was supported by countries around the world. Higher authorities, if you will. We planned to get Hutchinson out, and then when we learned of his death, we made the decision to attempt your release. Once again, you were one step ahead of us. We were pretty unnerved when you weren't in the cages, but... And we all just made it out of there by the skins of our teeth. We had no idea, said McGee. As I told your people, we thought the gunfire was directed at us. Yes, that man almost blew everything. There was still another reason why we came to the area. To find the location of the red metal Colonel Hutchinson told you about in Worcester. If the explosions didn't form a chain reaction, I'm sure we could have found the data. Data? Yes, data. My people tell me you made an attempt to enter the data room. Right. That's when the colonel was killed. Too bad we didn't make it. Annie and I were put back in those cages. Well, we're still working on the location. We suspect the red metal is still in outer space. Oh? Asked McGee, playing dumb. Do you think you'll ever find it? It'll take time and a lot of effort. Eventually, we'll deduce the location. The red metal is the strongest substance ever devised by man. That's my problem, not yours. I want you both to consider my offer, but I don't make it lightly. We just don't take anyone into the SIA, but you two have performed superbly. We want you on our side. We're truly overwhelmed, General, said McGee. 
We'll give your offer the true consideration it deserves. Excellent. Now let's put aside all this serious business. As previously noted, I procured your rooms at the Spaceport Hotel. So we'll be out of those old barracks we're in, smiled Annie. Of course, of course, all the debriefings have ended and you'll be treated just like any other guest at the Spaceport. You're on your own. I've instructed the driver to bring you back to the base. It's very kind of you, General, very kind, said McGee. Will we see you on board? asked Annie. I'm scheduled to ride up front in the VIP section, but I will make it a point to get back and see you both. You can count on that, he said as they stood. He walked them over to the door and opened it. You men will accompany my guests back to the base, see to their needs, and then report back to Sergeant Gannon. Yes, sir. Well, I hope the next few days can be a little less hectic than the past few days, smiled Kellogg. Oh, by the way, McGee, when you get back, you might want to try explaining that damn car of yours. Oh, my turbo in the tunnel. Let's not discuss my turbo. Okay, I understand. Enjoy the flight, smiled the general as he brought them outside. See you in space, smiled Annie. Sure enough, grinned Kellogg as the MPs brought them down the walk to the limousine. He watched them climb in the plush car. The MPs got in and the car once again kicked up the dust as it moved away. The general raised his brows and returned to the house in order to make the final preparations for the flight into space. Security around the spaceport was extremely tight. Over 36 hours remained till launch. Kellogg had his driver bring him over to the base. The MPs checked his credentials at the highway gate. They even had him step out while they scanned the car. He moved back inside and proceeded onto the base. His plan was to stay on the base right up to launch. Problems, however, were already developing. He had just entered his office and sat down in the chair when the Code 7 access screen sounded. He stood casually and activated the screen. Yes, what is it? Sergeant Gannon here, said a short man with closely shaved red hair. Yes, Gannon, what have you got? General, uh, we have a real problem here. We've already sent men all over the area. He said nervously. Look, Gannon, calm down. You've got men all over where? In the wildlife area. There's somebody in the wildlife area. You listen to me, Sergeant. I'm a busy man. I'm leaving on a space flight in less than 36 hours. Don't bother me with your petty problems. General, the computers match the man's description. It's a 90% match with Colonel Thomas Hutchinson. Hutchinson? stuttered Kellogg as his eyes opened. This can't be. That's impossible. He can't be on this base. Do you hear me? He can't. The computer, General. Listen to me, dammit. You search whatever it is that's out there. I don't want to hear anything more about Hutchinson, he said, belting the button and shutting off the screen. Then the intercom sounded. Now what the hell is it? He pushed the button. What the hell do you want? He yelled as Stoddard's face came into view. Cranky, cranky. I hope you're in a better mood at the meeting tomorrow morning, Matt. I'll be at this one, Walter. Don't you fret. Good. And when you go down to the SRT on Sunday morning, Matt, I want you and all the VIPs to go right up through the hangar. We'll shuttle you out to the spacecraft. See, the press will be covering the area. I don't want them hassling anyone. Well, that's good thinking. No doubt those bastards will be all over us. Yes. Now, I had dinner last night with Rothstein and Congressman Folsom. Rothstein, was he his usual obnoxious self? No, on the contrary, he was quite toned down from the rhetoric in his speech. I would say he's making a genuine effort to be objective about the flight. In 
impress might be a better word, and God knows he's the man to impress. He could be president before too long. Then he'll want to be calling all the shots. Go out of your way to give him what he wants, Matt. Oh, I'll certainly give it to him, smiled the general. Then I'll see you at the meeting. I'll be there, Walter, I'll be there, he said as he once again looked at the Code 7 screen. Maybe he had dismissed Gannon too easily. He cut off the director and ran across the room, activating the screen again. Gannon! Gannon! he shouted. Yes, General, said the sergeant as he came into view, standing with several of his men in the scrub brush. I don't understand it. This man was shot dead. What kind of power does the Ram Damar have? You really think Hutchinson is on the base? He asked with great trepidation. I do, General. But he can't elude us for long. There just isn't anywhere for him to go. We should have him within a half an hour, sir. Was he presently on the scans? Well, uh, no. He may be uh, jamming the signal. I don't have to remind you of the gravity of this situation, Sergeant. Get him and get him now. Kellogg hit the button and leaned against the window. He closed his eyes momentarily and then looked out. The searchlights were all over the transport in the distance. Men and jeeps shuffling back and forth as they ended the day's activities. He clenched his fists. The flight was so close. He wanted nothing, especially the very much Hutchinson, especially the very much alive Colonel Hutchinson to thwart his plans. McGee woke Annie at a very early hour. They had been asleep in the Spaceport Hotel since early evening. He was positive, however, that Kellogg had the room bugged. So they dressed and took a confusing route through the hotel, finally exiting at the elevator and stepping on the hotel roof. He took her hand and brought it to a small railing on the far side. Whoa, said McGee, looking down the 60 stories. We're up pretty high, she said as they adjusted to the height. The room provided a perfect view of the mighty SRT. It was seated on the runway across from the hangar. The searchlights had long since been turned off and only the bright tower lights illuminated the area. The white flying machine seemed even larger than it was, a bright spot in the surrounding darkness. I don't see how they even put that thing in the hangar, laughed McGee, leaning on the railing. Then he looked over to Annie and into her eyes. I brought you up here to tell you what I know about the red metal. Well, it's about time. Well, where, where else can I talk? He asked. I know, I know, I understand. You've been under some kind of surveillance ever since Patero Grande. You know, I slipped out this afternoon. I had a difficult time keeping those SIA men out of my hair. So where did you go? To a phone. I called the computers at SAS. Who is SAS? Space Advancement Society. They're a non-profit agency dedicated to the same basic goals as the space agency. Expansion into space. What they have is the listing of all space ventures from day one. The ones not under classification, of course. Ram Dama mentioned Metatrade Station 14, she said. Bins 9 through 12. I studied the plans as thoroughly as I could. I couldn't request a printout. The SIA would no doubt seize it before we were even on board. So what are we supposed to do? This time we check it out. And how do we get there, Mr. McGee? She wanted to know. It's on the SRT schedule of stops, and I know it's just a normal warehouse, minimal security. A monorail system transports the material around the complex. It's pretty big, over half a mile in diameter. I suppose the Ram Dama put the stuff there because he thought no one would suspect it at a simple location. And with him out of the way, we can get it. I know we can. 
he said as he grew excited. The prospect was almost too much for him to handle. I don't know, McGee. I mean, I know what this means to both of us. I really want the good life, but this sounds incredible. I just don't like it. What do you mean you don't like it? I have questions like, why did Hutchinson just bring you to that room? I don't understand. He could have just gone up there previously. He was scared, Annie. Damn scared. I'm the one who forced him up there, and he lost his life because of it. I know, I know. But what about the future? Ah, the future, he smiled. We'll be set for life, don't you see, sunshine? We'll get married, buy a penthouse in New York, a farm in the country, have a whole lot of kids. Oh, you've got it all planned, haven't you, McGee? She smiled. Oh, the ever-confident and optimistic McGee. Sometimes that scares me. Oh, don't be scared, he said, holding her close. He kissed her softly on the lips. Don't ever be scared with me. How can I be scared with a man who has it all planned, she said. McGee put his arm around her and they looked outward. Security must be tight around that ship, he surmised. Very tight. I bet you couldn't get within a quarter mile. It could be done. You have no imagination. It could be done. You have enough to worry about, sweetheart, she told him, without trying to get into that ship. Things like trying to get the red metal out of the warehouse? Well, that will take months of planning. As for right now, I can just... I just feel like thinking. Mull over the stuff in my mind. You want coming down? No, you go back to the room. I'll be back in a while. I want another look at those warehouse scans. I thought you said it would be easy. It will be if I remember everything. I'll be back soon. All right, she said, kissing him. I won't be long, he said as he looked deep into her eyes. Hey, McGee, I love you, she said as she ran her hand over his cheek. I love you too. Damn, I think we were both destined to be together. That's why you should be careful. Keep away from those SIA guys. Wish me luck. Good luck. She said, kissing him again, and then she headed for the elevator. He kept his eyes on her the whole way, waving briefly as she stepped inside and the doors closed. Then he turned back to the SRT, looking at his watch as he thought. The tension was growing once again. He could feel it in his stomach. Closing his eyes, he tried to relax. No matter what challenges lay ahead, no matter if they got the red medal or not, they would spend their lives together. He opened his eyes and checked the watch again. The elevator would be free by now, and he headed over to the doors. There was still more work to do. General Kellogg had been waiting for only half a minute in front of the Code 7 screen. His patience had been depleted. Panic was now setting in. I demand to speak with Sergeant Gannon, he shouted once more, but the screen was filled with a fuzzy picture of the swamplands on the other side of the base. Hello, hello! Finally, he heard rustling in the bushes, and Gannon's unshaven face came into view. He was trying to catch his breath. I'm sorry, General. I uh, had to come back across the search line. Well, what the hell is going on out there? No, no, no sign of the Colonel. They did, however, locate a parachute. How can a man parachute into a restricted area? The General wanted to know. I suppose if anyone can do it, Hutchinson can. I'm sure the Colonel has acquired many friends over the years. He must have been helped. That doesn't help me. That man is a direct danger to all operations. An hour has passed now, and you told me you'd have him in less than a half an hour. Sorry, General. We're physically combing every inch of the ground. So wonder the press hasn't caught wind of this. 
If they weren't here, I'd have choppers all over that area. The damn press. I'd have choppers all over the area. What was that, General? Asked Gannon as someone handed him a radio. Nothing, nothing. What's going on? Have you heard something on that radio? Negative, sir. The men have just completed a sweep of the entire area down to the beaches. He's not out there. This is turning into a fiasco. I'll give you one hour, Gannon. And then I'm coming out there myself. He said, once again slamming his fist against the button. More pressure was building. The large digital clock on the side of the hangar read exactly 3 a.m. Things had settled down as the evening crew had gone home and the morning technicians were not due in for another hour. Tower lights burned steadily on the short-range transport, just over a day from its historic flight into, the outer, into outer space. The computers constantly scanned the inner systems for the slightest malfunction. Everything was perfect for launch. Under the shadows of the monstrous craft, an insignificant figure moved along its base. With the adroitness of an experienced mountain climber, he reached upward, attaching two magnetic clamps to the hull. He pulled himself up, making no sound at all, and then he slinked along the hull in total obscurity. With little effort, he opened up the rear hatchway, slipping inside. Unbeknownst to anyone, there was an intruder within the spacecraft, an intruder with designs only he could know. He rushed through the observation decks and the recreation rooms. The new vinyl smell was in the air as he passed the rows and rows of passenger seats. Opening the tunnel doorway up front, he hurried along the metal walkway that separated the two sections of the SRT. At the far end was a thick metal door. He opened it and then locked it securely. The VIP section lay before him. The seats in this area, about 40, were bright orange, and the observation decks tapered down from the outside aisle. He was reminded as the tower lights shined across the seats, this was no ordinary spacecraft. Very carefully, he opened the smoke glass doors up front and stepped onto a spiral metal stairway that led directly into the pilot's cabin. There could be no doubt that he knew exactly what he was doing. He ducked and crawled beneath the cabin windows to the pilot's seat. Outside, there were still a few people, but at some distance from the spacecraft. He checked his watch, still plenty of time before the morning crew arrived, but nothing was certain. His nerves were frayed. Sweat dripped from his forehead onto the floor of the cabin. Even his hands were shaking as he set a small flashlight under the consoles. There were a number of modules, each with an outside handle and black letters stamped across the front. He moved the flashlight very slowly past the modules. Then he stopped. The light illuminated the box he was looking for. Setting the light back on the floor, he grasped the handle with both hands and then turned it in a clockwise direction. He felt an easing on the tension bar. Unzipping his blue flight suit, he pulled a tiny glowing green tube from his pocket. The module drawer moved easily outward, revealing a brightly colored housing around its edges. The same color as the tube. He slowly inserted it directly into the housing. Nothing would show up on the computers when he pulled out the drawer. The module would still be functional. He moved the drawer toward him, bringing it about three feet from the housing. Now he could see its designation printed clearly on the protective covering. Guidance, control, module. He lifted the clasps on the side of the panel. The panel snapped from its protective position. Inside was a mass of red and blue light, almost incomprehensible in its array of microcircuits so small they could barely be seen with the naked eye and a gelatinous red material glowing steadily held larger blue circuits that connected five white cylinders. 
At the bottom was a palm-sized screen that was continuously flashing. Caution, ferrofluid circuits do not break field density. The intruder was breathing faster now. He took out a small digital meter and a pair of white plastic tweezers. Using the tweezers, he lowered the meter into one of the white cylinders. The digits moved upward, giving him a precise reading. He knew if the reading dropped due to his miscalculation or actually touching the material, the whole module would short out and the security men would be all over the ship in minutes. Once again, he checked his watch, 3.15. From another pocket, he took out a white box and set it in his hand. He popped it open. The inside bore a remarkable resemblance to the gelatinous red material inside the module. The object seemed to possess a life of its own. It was shaped like a miniature top hat, but had a very sophisticated circuitry and power system. To those with electronic knowledge, it was known as a combustor, a complex electrical unit that could be placed within a ferrofluid without direct detection. All power levels would read nominal. All the functions would be at 100%. But this combustor was capable of producing an encompassing magnetic field that would render the module completely useless. Holding the tweezers tightly, he picked up the combustor, lifting it into the dim cabin light. He gulped nervously. Then he lowered it toward the inner circuitry. Very carefully, he brought it directly over to a minuscule grouping of circuits. He released the grip and moved it gently into the blue field as it attached itself to the circuit. Immediately, he looked at the meter. The reading was exactly correct just where he wanted it. With the tweezers, he yanked the meter from the fluids. The worst was over. Very quickly, he clasped the lid over the top and slid the drawer under the console. But he was callous. Almost forgetting to retrieve the green tube, he grabbed it and pushed the drawer in place, twisting the handle to its correct position. Now, everything was in place. Breathing a sigh of relief, he moved under the windows again. The sound of his footsteps faded up the metal staircase and the smoke glass doors were closed. The die had been cast. Over 400 people would board the spacecraft on Sunday morning. They would be lifted from the planet to areas they had only dreamed about, but more importantly, be subjecting themselves to the whims of a saboteur, a saboteur who had cleverly made his escape back into the dead of night. Kellogg finished another drink. His eyes were as irritated as his mind. The Code 7 screen sounded. He slowly pushed the button. The time was, was 4 a.m. and there'd been no word on Colonel Hutchinson. He looked down at Gannon. The sergeant was in a jeep moving rapidly across the base. Report, Gannon. General, we just got a report from the hotel. Hutchinson was sighted going inside. What? shouted Kellogg, coming to life. We're on our way over there right now. You stay outside that hotel, Sergeant. Seal the place off with a minimal amount of commotion. I want this man myself. I'll get a hold of Johnson and bring him over there, too. Yes, sir, he said as Kellogg tapped the button. He ran for his desk drawer and took out a gun and a strap. It was fully loaded and he secured it over his shoulder. Putting on his coat, he ran for the door. For Matt Kellogg, there was only one way to handle this situation. He parked his jeep away from the front entrance and entered through a side door. Johnson and Gannon were already standing in the lobby. Why not just hold up a sign and tell them you're here? Snapped Kellogg as he met them. Every exit is sealed, General, said Johnson. Oh, is that right? There's no one by that side door over there. We have a man in a car, sir. All right, where's Hutchinson? He just inquired about McGee. I have a man following him. McGee, shouted Kellogg as he headed for the freight elevator. 
General, I assure you, my man will not let him get near the room, said Johnson. This man is my problem, sneered Kellogg. As the doors opened, the two men rushed inside. On the 58th floor, Colonel Thomas Hutchinson, dressed in a blue flight suit, emerged from the stairwell, thinking they might be waiting for him at the elevator entrance. He looked cautiously around the corner and then began walking toward the light blue carpet. Kellogg was in no mood to display caution. He and Johnson ran from the freight elevator to an adjacent corridor. His face looked like that of a mad dog as he pulled out his gun, ready at a moment's notice to stop the enduring Colonel Hutchinson. Hutchinson neared McGee's room. He raised his hand up to knock as Kellogg rounded the corner. The general opened fire without a second thought. Hutchinson heard the whooshing sound from the silencer after the bullet ripped into the wallpaper. Before he could run, Johnson joined the general. The colonel's jumpsuit became a mass of bullet holes as he was slammed into the floor. They ran forward past the room where Annie and McGee lay sleeping. Blood was all over the carpet and the walls. Get somebody up here. I want this thing cleaned immediately. No noise. What about him? Asked Johnson as they looked at the dead man. Let's get him the hell out of here. Ordered Kellogg. Yes, sir. Stupid fool, said the general as they hoisted up Hutchinson's limp body into the air. We paid him well, and then he goes off and pulls something like this. I wouldn't fret, general, said Johnson. All the voices have been silenced. Now all we have to do is wait out the day and launch tomorrow morning without any fear of anything going wrong. Join us again next week for another adventurous episode of the Ram Dama's Kingdom, Who is He Who Commands the Masses? Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.